Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. episode 349 of The Sausage Factory. Welcome. In this episode I chat to Casey Lucas Quaid and Robert Curry of Dinosaur Polo Club about the infrastructure building puzzle game Mini Motorways. I had to get up at an godly hour to record this show. No, like you care. You're just a listener. Put me on a train or something. That's fine. But I really, you know... One has to suffer for one's art. Um, I'm not a big early riser. Gotta gotta say, all this study, family show. But you know what I mean. It's getting up at four four thirty in the morning. I had to do this. Why? Why? Well, Dinosaur Polo Club are based in New Zealand, whereas I am based in London. Opposite sides of the planet, you see. They're twelve hours ahead. They live in future times. But. Be that as it may, it doesn't matter. You don't care. You want to just hear me talk to these two lovely people, Casey and Robert, about Mini Motorways, which is an excellent, excellent game. Fantastic game. One of the best puzzle games I've played since the release of Threes. And regular listeners will know how I feel about Threes. The mere fact that I'm mentioning that game and Mini Motorways in the same sentence should say a lot, right? Okay, do you want to hear me say even more? Maybe you do, I don't know. Maybe you turned off by now. Who knows? Chris, could you entertain these people? Thank you. Robert and Casey. Hello. Who are Good you? Good morning slash evening. Well, yeah, whatever time of day people listen to this, who are you? And what do you do? Uh, yeah, yeah, hi. Um, so I'm co-founder and senior game designer at Dinosaur Polo Club. Uh, so I founded the studio with my brother, Peter, when we made the game Mini Metro, which started back in 2013. Uh, yeah, and so I helped design Mini Motorways. 
And uh, I'm currently the community and engagement manager on Mini Motorways, well, and all of Dinosaur Polo Club's titles. And I had kind of a weird and meandering path to get into game development and then worked in games while uh, working in other industries. So yeah, inter interesting path to get there, but uh, it's all been kind of community and play focused. Mm -hmm. So the second question then, find out a little bit more about yourselves and we can do Casey, Robert, Robert, Casey, I don't mind. <laughs> How did you make your start making flashy, lighty video games? Uh, I can jump in first. Yeah, so um, I'd always been interested in games. Actually, I think the first, the thing that got me interested in games in general uh, is the best game ever made, Hero Quest, in 1999, 1990, the, the Milton Bradley Games Workshop kind of. Yeah, they um, re released it recently, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. There, yes, there is. I don't know if it's out yet, but yes, yes, they did. I did have a look at that. Um, I got, I got that. Um, my brother and I got that on our uh, Christmas Day in 1990, and that pretty much set us down the path of kind of geekdom for forever. Um, and yeah, and then we were we would spend our times designing board games and war games and, and uh, that kind of thing. And then when we got our first computer in '93. Uh, that, yeah, then we were just like, oh, you can play games on these things. How cool is that? Uh, and then, yeah, and then pretty much from there, we just it was just kind of a pretty natural path into games. Um, just so happened that there was a, a game studio hiring when, when we both graduated from um, university, uh, which is now called PicPop. Uh, so so they, they, they're a successful um, phone games company now. Uh, they make games like I Am Monster and... Rebel Stars Horse Racing and things like that. Um, so, yeah, we got to start there back in the early to mid-2000s. Um, and then we went off and did our own thing in 2006, which was a challenging time, I think, having a look back on it now, uh, to go alone as an indie. Uh, the iPhone wasn't out yet, and Steam Steam wasn't doing independent games either. So, so it, was a, it, it was a rough time. Um, and it was we, just at the beginning, yeah. though, wasn't it? I mean, that's when yeah, it was. Really, I remember, it was a year before iPhone arrived, believe it or mm, not. And, and then, the Xbox was an extra year after that, I think. Yeah, yeah. Then it just Xbox. means you got in on the ground floor. I know. I know. I can <laughs> yeah. remember. Uh, I remember a friend of ours. Actually, the artist who then helped us out on um, um, Mini Metro, Jamie Churchman. He he was recommending to us to have a look into the iPhone. Uh, this was back here, back in two thousand and seven, eight, whenever it was out, and we were just like. Come on, phone games, really? And, and now looking back on it, thinking if we'd actually got in on it, uh, yeah, that would have been a very different history. But um, yeah, so so that was. I remember. Uh, I I think I was playing Aquaria at the time. So that that was that had recently come out. Cortex Command was around, and I think World of Goo had launched. Oh on, yes, on the, yes, the. Whichever Nintendo console was around then, gosh. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was the Wii and the yeah, it was the Wii. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I remember we were kind of looking at those things, thinking, oh, okay, so it's possible. Like there is a path out there. I think actually, I don't remember the year exactly, but I have vague memories of um, uh, what was the, uh, the first Zetronics game that that was on Steam. Um, 
Ken, Space, Space Ken, I think, I think Space Ken had also, around that time, was on Steam, which, which was kind of, so, so there were some indie games that were sort of forging a path to mainstream success, uh, but we, we, were, we weren't sort of, I don't think we were business savvy enough at the time to really kind of spot these, these opportunities. So, so then, then we just kind of went back into the, I, I think in 2008, I went back into doing uh, web stuff and, and then Pete was doing, um, he, he ended up working at a, a uh, working on bathroom visualization software. So just, we just were like, no, nah, we kind of had our dash with the uh, games and then, and then that was it. And then, um, though then, Five years after that, in 2013, we we just we just had a game jam uh, one weekend for fun. Pete was Pete had had his first his his first son born at that time. I think he was about one, and Pete was thinking quite seriously about okay, if I did want to actually be a be a um, independent video game developer again, I'm going to need to do something small. So 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 he'd been thinking about doing kind of kind of a small thing again, and. Uh, we just got got discussing about kind of small things we could build, and, and we're kind of really thinking about scope and about how we can actually make a thing together and have it done. And so that that's when we got discussing about really small scope games. And so that's that's when we we designed um, uh, the game that would that, that would become Mini Metro, uh, and we designed it in an hour verbally and then implemented it in a day and a half for the um, Udandare uh, game jam and then and then it was yeah it was a lot better than we expected and then then we just sort of uh, Pete started working it full time and I, I then I think joined on full time about six months afterwards and then then we released it on iPhones for 2016 on Steam a year earlier and then it was a big success and here we are yeah that's, wow that's my my origin story anyway that was that was honestly like uh that was, that was quite illuminating considering uh i've i've read all this stuff in the like now you work for dinosaur polo club here's here's what we did as a company and the dates we did it on but like actually hearing you tell it as a story is actually it's actually quite cool all right okay yeah it's interesting how we talk about indie games and their creation i mean that's how in certainly well, no. Uh, outside North America, I'm going to say this, but um, which thankfully there are worlds outside that fine continent. Um, the whole indie game and bedroom coder—that's how it started, and then it folded in on itself, and then it came back again. It's like history has a tendency to repeat itself. Um, but uh, yeah, I do definitely think that that the way we dispute games and and the kind of appetites of of enough of the. Of the uh, game is now it does show you don't have to compete like you can make your own space within the yes. within the ecosystem yeah yes stanley yeah. parable is a great example of that for sure. yeah for sure. like <laughs> yeah. you you just have to find a spot that yeah something hasn't been done before and or for a long time and i think that's that's a good good way in yeah you you, you don't have to compete with with all the big boys no i mean look, if you took uh papers please into a like major publisher like, back then they would go they would just start they would escort you from the building abruptly like, get out get out no one wants that and turns out everyone really did want that so casey how about yourself 
Oh, well, my my path into uh, working on this game in particular could could not be more different from, from Rob's or from most of the people uh, who work with us here at Dinosaur Public Club. It's uh, it's quite funny. So I uh, got into playing games at, at quite a young age. I was um, raised in a household without a television or anything like that until I was, uh, I think, 12 or 13. But I had friends who had things like Super Nintendos and Sega Genesis consoles. And so I was able to kind of peek into that world uh, over at other people's houses, basically. And then my older brothers who uh, weren't living with us at the time, uh, they're, they're so much older than me that they were kind of out and doing their own thing already, um, finally handed their uh, extremely secondhand battered old uh, NES to my little brother and I when I was about, gosh, I think probably 13 or 14, yeah. And so I was a, I was a serious retro gamer uh, before that was really a thing. And I was quite passionate about wanting to get into games and work on games um, from pretty much that moment on. And journeying further and further backwards technologically from where I started, I moved on from playing NES games to um, working on Telnet games. <laughs> hey. So this is, this is mean, like 2000, you're, you're one, 2002. Yeah. You're one step away from the Charles Babbage counting machine at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, like, if I hadn't if I hadn't got hired by Rob, I pretty much would have like Benjamin buttoned my way all the way back there. I think probably, <laughs> probably. Yeah, so so I ended up working on a game called Armageddon, um, which is a Telnet game that was founded in 1991 and is still live. And yeah, I started working on it in 2009 as an object designer, and then later an area designer. And then I did a role called Storyteller, which is kind of like a hybrid player community slash narrative role. And uh, yeah, over over the next nine and a half years, I, I put, in, put in some hard yards on that game and uh, did not work on a game that had graphics until 2020. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's up there with Dwarf Fortress and Insanity there. Well, well done. That's that's when, when I was interviewing at Dinosaur Polo Club, um, JR, our old producer, asked me, like, so what games have you been playing recently? And I was just like, uh, Dwarf Fortress? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, when someone says that, you have to pause and go, well, fair play to you. I just, I, <laughs> well done. That's that's an experience uh, and a thing. But, uh, yeah, I no, remember giving that game a crack actually. Um, before and before I left Gene Interactive, so that would have been like two thousand five, two thousand four. Yeah, wow. It still looks pretty much the same. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I mean, I can relate to the whole retro thing. I have an extraordinary collection of machines that all work. Uh, but uh, like, uh, I recently, um, I mean, I had to recap my Amigas because they are just bleeding everywhere and my sega master system or mega drive has been modified to a point where it can play anything from any region and all that sort of stuff but uh yeah it's uh it's 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 a thing games certainly for us in kane and rinse we don't recognize retro games games are just games whether they're made a week ago or i don't know 40 years ago still the games right? yeah and that's that's sort of how i was when i was kind of growing up into gaming and then eventually uh working in gaming because it was all new to me 
Like yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't experiencing anything through like a nostalgia filter or um, I, I wasn't even getting secondhand like, oh, you really have to play this game that I played when I was a kid. Cause like, I, I, I literally, this is going to make my childhood sound weird and sad, but I grew up in a very small town, like in the woods that didn't really have any, any other kids. So I wasn't even getting like secondhand knowledge of what other games were happening or what other people were playing. So I just sort of organically stumbled into the things I stumbled into purely by chance. And um, so, yeah, it, it wasn't ever like retro games for me. It was just um, what I happened to play and what I happened to get into at the time that I happened to get into it. And um, I, I didn't I didn't realize until I'd been working at Armageddon for, I think, probably five or six years until someone was like, ah, so have you ever, have you ever played like Half-Life or anything like that? And I was like, well, yeah, I got some stuff I'm going to get to get around to. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I had a similar experience. No, I don't think quite as uh, cut off as you, you were, but, but um, yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I began playing games in the, uh, before the internet was like a big thing. And so, and from about 93 to, I don't know, maybe 98 or so, I, I, I was just relying on like this, this uh, uh, friend of my mum's who, who would just hand us games every now and then. And so it was just up to him what we, what we would end up playing. So we just had this, this, like, this that whole, whole variety of games that we just didn't know where we even got games from. I had no idea like how you would buy them or anything. Um, so yeah, it was all, it was just a whole bunch of adventure games and things like XCOM and Civ and things like that. Um, and I, I didn't know like what was brand new, what was old or anything. It was just what, what we had. And I can remember what we used to buy PC Gamer and PC Zone magazines. I think I bought perhaps like five ever, but we would just read those things back to front like a hundred times. And just and just but just didn't ever think we could just buy the games in them because they were just so not so out of my like what I thought was available. Yeah, so so we 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 just ended up not being able to like pick pick what we played. It was just we just we we would we would just just like thrash anything we had. Yeah, yeah. it's it kind of a, a geographic remoteness. I think yeah. Uh, yeah. New Zealand used yeah. to be a lot more cut off from the world than it is right now, just from a, from an international shipping standpoint. And then I, I grew up in a, in a very, very remote town in the Northern California mountains that was, at the time I lived there, we were a uh, population 860. And um, it was so far off the major highways that you kind of had to deliberately swerve up into the middle of nowhere to go there. Like there was no way to accidentally end up there. And so it would have been a journey all the way kind of down out of the hills and along the meandering coastal roads and then eventually you'd end up in San Francisco. But like it, it was a serious dedicated like half day's drive if you wanted to actually go to the city where there were things like electronic stores or whatever. And um, we didn't have a library either. But I remember the first time uh, I ended up going to the library in the next town over and I found some like Nintendo Power magazines. I was just like, oh, oh, they kept making Nintendos? There's all these new Nintendos? Like, what the hell? <laughs> you know? Oh, my God. Yeah, wow. I remember, I think the, the worst thing I can remember, I guess it kind of highlights that, was when we, when my brother and I bought King's Quest VI for $170. Uh, this would have been, what, 95 or 6? I can't remember when it was out. I think I think this one came on 26 five and a quarter inch discs. 
and and I, I mean, hundred and sixty million bucks in American dollars back then would have been like probably over a hundred dollars. I think it was just it was, things were very expensive, and so that's that's why we did not buy games very often because they were uh, just, yeah. And it, it is quite it's the fascinating background because speaking to someone who grew up in southeast London, that small small hamlet, um, <laughs> that. Uh, Entirely different experience. In fact, it's exa- it was exhausting. All right, um, and you had to be on. You had to know things other people didn't know in advance of other people knowing the stuff. And then you had some credence. You had some. Oh, did you hear about? I would still remember first hearing about the Amiga and denying it that such a beast of a computer could exist, and it did. Uh, and it was all very white heat of technology kind of environment that I grew up in. It was, uh, you know, going, well, my my local shopping strip was actually Oxford Street in London. That's, that's where <laughs> You know, so there, so there wasn't any like, oh well, I was the first child in the village to discover that no. Spyro the Dragon existed. No, no, just none of that. It was instead this constant struggle for um, finding out the newest stuff and finding the cheapest way to acquire said thing, which we could have. We had many, many avenues to do that. I mean, I feel your pain about the cost of things and like. You know, really, it didn't really for us. It was a, you know, we had stuff <laughs> to go to or places to go. We just knew where to find this stuff, and it was uh, still, yeah. The Tottenham Court Road and Oxford, and Oxford Street. There were the two bastions for a while to buy our latest stuff, and we just took it for granted. Stupid thing to do, but we did because that's what we we didn't know any different. We thought well, everyone was like this, right? We isn't everywhere like this. No, <laughs> no. You know, is it, why is I think, it like... I think if, kids, if kids had that knowledge and they weren't running around being ratbag scavengers taking things for granted, they'd be adults. So, yeah, you know. exactly, exactly. So my next question, and fabulous histories, thank you very much, is um, as creators of things, which you are, what do you believe are your biggest influences? Oh, that's an interesting one for me, actually, because um, I moonlight as a science fiction and fantasy author, as well as a comic book editor. So I draw a lot of inspiration from things that have nothing to do with games. <laughs> um, I think when I when I think of uh, what I draw inspiration from specifically uh, with the work that I've been doing, it's almost more like I draw inspiration from the way that certain things made me feel rather than aspects of their design, be it like the way they play or visually or anything like that. Um, when I was thinking about the way that I wanted the mini motorways and mini metro communities to feel, uh, I kind of I thought about some of the what, what are kind of the, the formative experiences that I had with uh, discovering people who played games and sharing things with them about games that I thought were cool and um, kind of what was what was the driving force behind that. And I think it was just the fact that um, <laughs> this, this is also, I, I swear to God, this isn't just supposed to be like a tour of like ways in which my childhood was weird and creepy and kind of sad. But um, when I was a kid, I used to spend a lot of days after school uh, at our local uh, railway museum 
because it was free. And that was just a, a place you could take your kid for no money. And um, I remembered playing with and just kind of observing the model trains there. And um, I, I feel like train guys kind of get a bad rap. Like train guys get made fun of in a way that I think is quite unfair. And um, it's it's quite easy to kind of fall down the rabbit hole of uh, being super into, you know, model trains or train paraphernalia or train spotting or train fandom. But um, I just remember the way that interacting with the kind of train community at the museum made me feel. And it was just like a collection of people being very excited about something that they all had in common, even though every single person kind of used it in a completely different way. Some people were very into the model trains because they played with them when they were kids. Uh, some people were serious collectors. Some people were uh, like older ladies who had traveled all the way around the world and loved to do that thing where they ride all the famous train lines in all the countries and like, oh, before I die, I want to ride the Blue Diamond and I want to ride the famous trains in Cape Town and the Oriental Express. And um, the I think the success of Mini Metro uh, can kind of be uh, attributed, apart from, you know, just the, the game itself playing and looking great. Um, that sort of universal experience where everyone has kind of something they can draw on that reminds them of an experience that they had, even if it was, you know, just a, a fleeting memory, everyone can kind of go like, oh, yeah, I, I, I did a train thing once, you know. And um, when I was trying to design the community presence for Mini Metro, I wanted to kind of draw on that same that same feeling where... Um, you don't have to be a hardcore train spotter to be welcome hanging out with us. You don't have to be a super skilled high score puzzle gamer to hang out with us. You can just be a person that's like, you know what? I just, I, I really like this map that I drew because it has these nice kind of concentric, uh, concentric circles. I drew a figure eight in the middle. It's dope. And um, yeah, it was just sort of uh, trying, trying to find a way that we could draw in everyone who had an experience that could, uh, that could just, sort of relate to that little moment of that little moment of wonder and play like more like playing with a toy than playing a game yeah i mean for me trains equals oh great it's a points failure outside london bridge joy <laughs> this, this is my day oh yeah so that's that's basically typical londoners sort of interaction with trains that <laughs> but, uh, without without that vast network we'll be we'll be you know i don't even own a car what was the point you know so it's uh yeah about a uh, wonderful sort of um uh, influences there and like you know, drawing from things be outside the realm of video games is a good thing what about you robert what's the thing that sort of like you point at yeah, you know, I, was that's, say, that's I think thing. yeah i think i think i'm i mean i think i've got two types of inspiration <laughs> um Professionally, I'd say that, yeah, we, we've always found success when we've looked outside of games and just, just into kind of mundane things. Uh, so just a map. And I think, you know, you know, everyone kind of understands a map and then we're kind of having a look at it and thinking, okay, how can we turn a metro map into a game or, or how can we turn a road map into a game? And I think that's that's been really successful for us and just trying to think about a better thing that, that many people have an experience with and that they don't have to be okay with games to really understand what the core concept is or what we what kind of the point of it is because i think if you if you have a look at our games you you can see from a screenshot you you, you kind of can put your your own own experience with that system 
into it and think, okay, I, I can get it. I, I can at least see like what the point is that I'm supposed to do here. Like, like I understand this the the system that 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 this is this is aiming to replicate. So that I think once we shifted away from looking at games as inspiration to just other things, that was that was when we started to to come up with ideas that were interesting. Uh, well, that were interesting to a wider audience and that were um, also possible to do because we didn't have to compete alongside all these other games. But having said that, I do, for, for things that I do, I, I suppose at home or, or have kind of aspirations for, I, I, I can't help but be inspired by, by all the strategy games and, and action games and thing, things that I've, I've, I've enjoyed. Um, it would be remiss of me if I didn't stay spelunky. That's, that's, that's been a huge, huge... Um, design inspiration, uh, as I think it is for, for many, many game designers around the world. Um, and and uh, uh, strategy games like, um, oh gosh, XCOM and Seven, things like that are ones that I, I would like to, uh, like one day attempt a thing alongside. But, but um, and, and also other, um, there's this one game that I, I played for ages for a long time, um, for um, uh, a few years ago, called called Hoplite. It's a small little uh, phone uh, roguelike, and and that that game I just I just, I just always admired for how how elegant it is, but but how how much depth can can come out of it. So I, I think those those kinds of yeah, all that that kind of strategy roguelike, and also just real world stuff that doesn't have anything at all to do with games, I'd say would be sort of a rough pool of inspiration. Yeah, that's fine. Right. It's, yeah. it's, it's probably something you don't really think too hard about. Most creators don't, but they just I just find it fascinating to hear about the things that they orbit, whether they want to or not, that they find they're yeah, drawing I think it can, Yeah, I think it can be helpful to really analyze where you spend your time and where you get inspiration from because I actually don't play that many games anymore. I, I um I'm kind of play games these days to just hang out with with friends, but I don't often play games just by myself at home. Um which does sound really odd and I and, and I I do sometimes have to kind of set aside time to just, just for homework almost. <laughs> uh, I mean it's not like it's not like bad homework. It isn't things like, oh go to play some games but I do like I, I won't by default sit down and play games, which I know just seems very odd for a game designer. But um, no, that's fine. That's yeah. fine. So my next question, and this one's a toughie. It, 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 it's you know this this podcast is similar to a video game. There is a mini boss in the middle, so don't worry. Play yourself. Um, in that, uh, the question is this: What developer do you most admire in the industry, and why? For me, the people that spring to mind um, would be Lucas Pope. I think he, the fact he builds his games uh, by almost completely by himself is, is it, in fact, it is quite inspirational. I did, I did start a game by myself for a few years ago with the intention of doing of doing everything. I was like, man, this is really hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the fact he can just put years into these games and without having a firm idea at the start about what they're going to be is, is I find completely incredible. Um, and, and just that, that he just does very, like, I, I think he does the same thing that we kind of do in that just picking something that's not being a traditional game 
concept and just thinking, well, let's see how I can make, make this interactive. Uh, yeah. And I mean, also, I think Derek Hughes pretty amazing as well. <laughs> I think pretty, I, pretty good at what he does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for sure. Can you give us some for, for listeners' sake, we give some examples of what they've done. Oh, right. Sorry. Um, Lucas Pope is responsible for Papers, Please. And, of course. Um, uh, the one on the show. Oh, um, Jen and uh, Derek Yu is uh, Spelunky, Spelunky 2 is, and some. Uh, also did um, uh, uh, Aquaria and, and some older games as well. Yeah. yeah, I think uh, I just love the fact is how bemused he is about how successful his games are. Like, why? why, why yeah, well, sometimes that? just the games that you like to make happen to be a thing that heaps of other people will want to play, and that, that, yeah. that often is just an accident. Yeah, yeah. What about you, Casey? Any any peoples or developers or companies that you point to and go, "You there? You you carry on doing the thing that you do." Oh, gosh, uh, so many. And um, it, it's quite interesting because uh, when I when I think about, you know, developers that I admire, um, I'm not going to name and shame anyone because most of most of the developers that I admire the most are the people that I know who work in the industry, who I know well enough to know what's going on in their lives and the struggles that they are facing and the stuff that they have had to work through. And then I just look at the fact and it's like, holy shit, I'm amazed that you make anything at all. I'm just so impressed, <laughs> you know, like um, it's it's a hard job, even in ideal conditions and um, knowing knowing exactly how hard it is for some people behind the scenes and uh, how much they're struggling with some things, be it uh, recent losses during the pandemic or family stuff or uh, medical stuff. Um, I'm just, I'm always so impressed at uh, the resilience of people who work in games and how um, the passion that they have for that subject matter always seems to to just kind of uh, be, be able to kind of carry them through and uh, help them focus on their work through stuff that frankly would have caused me to bomb out of any other job that I would have. But um, as far as something that I can actually uh, share with listeners that will make sense, um, I have to say that uh, uh, alongside what Rob said, uh, I'm just so impressed with certain uh, solo developers. Uh, Ty Sylvester, who's been working on RimWorld for the last few years, is just um, the, the sheer depth and the level of granularity that RimWorld can kind of get down to is, um, is genuinely impressive uh, for, for a project that started so small. But um, what I really think is impressive about RimWorld is that it has that granularity while also not being completely horrible and impossible to learn for a layman just looking at it. Because like, like I said, I mentioned I'm, I'm a Dwarf Fortress player. I can, I can handle granular. I can handle uh, having to instruct every single little icon on your screen very specifically because uh, if you don't tell it specifically what to do in the order that you need to do it, it will forget to arm its shield and will instead carry its nursing infant into battle, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but I've been able to show RimWorld to people who are not that level of gamer and they can still pick it up and play around with it and be like, oh, my dude just like tried to propose to this other dude by giving him a bell pepper. Isn't that sweet? <laughs> it's just like um, there's this, this there's this level of instant uh, storytelling and sharing and um, for other projects that we've been kind of kicking, kicking around in our brain pans at a uh, dinosaur polo club that 
that level of being able to instantly pick up the game and uh, construct even a silly little narrative of like guy giving a bell pepper to another guy or guy is refusing to sleep in his bed because he's convinced it's haunted. Like you can, you can kind of take that, um, that tiny detail and scale it up into a huge simulation. And um, so many games attempt that, but uh, RimWorld is one of the few that just really, uh, really captures it. Uh, I, I, I hesitate to use the P word, but it is, it is almost perfect. You, you thought I was going to say yeah, another yeah, P no, word, no, didn't I you? Was trying, yeah, I was trying to guess. I was thinking, what was that yeah. P? That, 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 that's a whole philosophical argument about the chasing of perfection, which is not possible in the art of creation. But, no, uh, it's not. But um, as far as as far as the experience of just being able to pick a game up and have a brilliant user experience from beginning to end, whether you're a complete newbie or someone who knows the game like the lines of your own palm, RimWorld is up there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Last question of the first half. Here it comes. And we have to ask this question because we're a video game podcaster. Here it is. What are you playing right now? Oh, I just I just played a bit of um, Wilderness, uh, and man, that was that was a cool experience. I meant to only play it for about half an hour, and then I, I played it for I think I think three or four. Um, that is that is pretty cool. That just comes up with the most interesting stories. Uh, and I've been playing heaps of uh, Total War Warhammer Two with my brother. It's it, it so we were into into the whole kind of games workshop hobby as kids and. Total Warhammer is just a kind of a really fun way for people in you know my sort of age and and life position to be able to indulge back into that hobby uh, without having to spend hundreds of hours with, with our paints and miniatures and stuff. Um, <laughs> though I mean I I do still do still also do that as well. But anyway, um, and yeah, it's just it's just a nice fun fun way to 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 just hang out together. Um, and it has made me realise how how important King's Workshop was to my childhood as well, because I just know it all back to front, and it's all just like it's just like returning home, actually. Yeah. So that, that, those were my kind of uh, uh, two most recent games, I think. Uh, it's a fabulous game, especially when a, a a long thought out and planned strategy actually falls off, when you actually manage to close the door on some poor unfortunate enemy, like. Oh, you think I'm just going to draw you in to be fine? Slam! Oh no, never mind, eh? <laughs> but uh, no, fabulous games and uh, quite ridiculous as well. Some of those units, because it's Warhammer, are utterly ridiculous. So yeah, oh, completely. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've just found you just gotta you, you just gotta lean into it, right? It's, yeah, it's yeah. just don't, it's don't, don't, this, is, this is not the Napoleonic sort of like war like strategy. No, WC. Look, it's. It's an orc riding an elephant, which is also riding a troll. Just let it go. It's fine. <laughs> so true. Yeah. yeah. And honestly, even even a lot of the really, like, kind of more traditional and noble sort of wartime stories are, are actually quite goofy as well. Um, my husband and I have recently been rereading all 21 of Patrick O'Brien's uh, Aubrey Maturin books, the books that the Master and Commander film was based on. Yeah. And they're these they're these huge sprawling Napoleonic war epics. They're, they're very silly. <laughs> like they are they are just charmingly over the top goofy, and you can tell the author is just reveling in it. And um, 
Yeah, I, th- I think I think that's actually that's actually quite good. It kind of it kind of uh, relieves the pressure, especially if you're playing multiplayer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and there's, there's supposed to be so to turn it into another side, but there's all two sides of these things. You don't get the same kind of stories from World War One. We all know why. Uh, and you know that that that, that sorry to, to switch it over, but it's just like oh yeah no that that should not have happened. But uh, yeah, you're right. At, at that time, it's almost a, a, there's an innocence to it or to it all because they're all sort of like discovering this new way of thinking, and then and it all changed, didn't it? So. I mean, on the bright side, we got the Dada movement out of it. You know. Yeah. Yeah. You did. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sort of, Casey, did you say who you were playing? <laughs> no, I didn't actually. No, I, no, I no. said that I read 21 books about warships that had nothing to do with games no, at all. Video games, no, no, exactly. Yeah, I was, I was trying to pull one past you, but um, no, that, that's okay. I, I do actually play video games. Um, <laughs> I do I do remember what they are. Uh <laughs> No, I've uh, I've been very fortunate uh, to have been uh, a judge for IndieCade this year, and oh. so I've been really enjoying some of the titles that they have submitted uh, to to the jury. And um, th- this one's actually out in early access, uh, so I can talk about it. I'm pretty sure. I'm I'm not sure if I'm supposed to be talking about the fact that I was a judge on IndieCade, but I'm presuming that it's fine because I don't know <laughs> if. They, you know, if if they send the squad after me, uh, yeah, well. you know, put put something cool on my tombstone, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> they they could just blame Kane and Rince. It'd be fine. <laughs> yeah, um, but what what are the titles that uh, that I got to judge for? Indicate was Power Wash Simulator, and uh, boy, I did not expect a power washing simulator to be like the most relaxing experience I have had playing a game in probably years it's just very soothing and um the textures are great but mostly it's the sound effects it's just this like soothing kind of like like hose noise for hours and it's just a it's it's a very bizarre concept executed very well and uh it's it's quite fun to play and um, what are you watching Power washing everything, your, your driveway, your car, your house, your gutters. Um, there's, a, there's a stage where you can power wash a playground with like a dinosaur slide. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's pretty good. It's, and it's then, like, um, yeah, yeah. Katamari Demartino, uh, what do you roll? Everything. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just, it's a, it's a very simple, but kind of off you know, kind of like offbeat concept, uh, done really well. And uh, apart apart from that, there have just been some genuinely good kind of more traditional games that I've been playing for IndieCade. And um, a friend of mine also recommended this game called uh, The Good Time Garden, which is available free on Steam. It's uh, published by this um, developer called Cole Supper. And I don't really know how to describe it other than... Um, it's just it's a it's kind of more of a piece of surreal animation than a game where you just sort of uh play a little guy wandering through a garden full of squishy sound effects and everything is very pink and wet and everything kind of has tongues and eye stalks and it's just i don't know it's 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 very 
unusual, even by the weird artsy indie game standard of unusual. And um, and just just like Power Wash Simulator, I've just really been enjoying the sound design. Um, but this this is this is a game you're gonna you're gonna want to play with headphones on if you're playing it anywhere near other people. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Nice. Um. I don't know how to respond to that, apart from I'd have to check those out. Especially the washing one. That sounds very therapeutic. Oh, it is. It's, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. So that's the end of the first half. Thank you very much for that. Very illuminating it was too. But let's, uh, let's now press on to part two of the show, where we delve deep into mini motorways. First question isn't a question, it's a request. In your own words, please describe to us what you believe Mini Motorways is. Uh, I can go ahead and uh, do that one because I've been writing marketing copy for Mini Motorways for the last 18 months and it is seared into my brain. Um, but I'm not, I'm not just going to give you the Steam store page version. Um, Many Motorways is a game that blends strategy and simulation and puzzler in a really interesting way. Basically what you're doing is you are playing the role of a road network designer who is working through simulated versions of the challenges that city planners have to accommodate when they're planning roads. So rather than us saying, okay, here's a stack of buildings and a stack of roads, design a city. Uh, we introduced a level of randomness where you are drawing roads between pre-existing buildings that spawn in a random procedurally generated way. This is designed to kind of emulate the, uh, the struggles that city planners face when they're having to figure out how to lay roads in cities that already existed, may or may not have been designed to accommodate automobiles from the get-go. So you're sort of like, well, okay, here I am trying to pave a road through Rome, but oh shit, everything's really important. We don't want to just, you know, knock down the Colosseum. There's a lot of heritage buildings here. Oh no, there's also a really intricate and old sewer system. 
And basically every map is going to have these randomly generated buildings as well as the uh, geography challenges that you'll be familiar with from Mini Metro if you've played it with uh, coastlines and uh, topography, hills and that sort of thing. And so what you're trying to do is you are trying to design roads that will allow the people of your city to drive to where they need to go. But uh, do, do you know what the big problem is in the city, Chris? The, the, the one really, really big problem? Go on. It has no public transport. So yeah, all of your cars are horrible, inefficient, single, single occupancy vehicles. Yes. And um, you, you have nothing but your own wits to guide you there. And uh, we, we do hope that the game might cause people to do a little bit of meditation on uh, how bad that is for a city. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, there is some conceit there. Uh, I, I fully grant you that. And uh, yeah, this is not the way to go. Speaking as someone who lives in a large city that's largely reliant on public transport, uh, um, I can relate to. Like you know, people don't really people do drive in London, but it's not really it's recommended. Not recommended because <laughs> you know, this grids are overrated. No, no one wants that. <laughs> how, how, how do you get to this place where you take the second right then go about two streets down then past the green man pub to the left but not not that pub the other one that's in the same name <laughs> you know yeah it's uh why, why why would you do that and for me the way the way i would describe it it's like um trying to manage the traffic system to the worst sim city player ever basically yeah pretty much it's it's like it's trying trying to help the occupants of a city get to where they need to go when the city was designed by a careless child correct yeah and uh actually seeing the game initially when i saw some images and videos and stuff and i just thought you know that's like wanting to fix the little traffic um, collections and when you played SimCity all those years ago when it first came out and it had this little icon showing that there was a traffic jam and you had this whole mass of cars sort of merging on this little junction and going I wish I could fix that well now you can <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. so my first design question is this Servicing communities to get to destinations generates significant growth more than others in mini motorways. How is this modelled? What, what, how is this, what is the, the logic behind that? Because it's fascinating to see that as the better you get at getting people to their destinations, the more popular that destination becomes and then it starts growing communities. And then those it's, communities start springing up elsewhere. Can you tell us the cause and effect of that? Yeah, sure. Quite easy, actually. Um, that's that's actually just random, you know. I think. <laughs> yeah, that's that's confirmation bias, man. We actually did, we 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 were talking a long, long time ago about having supply driven, no, demand driven supply. Other way, and yeah. So so having that if you do service a building a lot then it would expand but um yeah. we, we couldn't look out a way to have it to implement it in kind of a sensible way that couldn't be gamed easily um but it sounds like we didn't have to yeah 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 that's fantastic um 
Yeah, we, I mean, we, we do have a we do have a fair bit going on behind the hood to determine which buildings appear, how many houses appear, that, that kind of thing. Um, but actually, it's not. It's best my knowledge. It's not reactive. So uh, the roads that you build and the and the, the points that you get and which cars go where doesn't actually affect the growth of the city. It's all just. Um, yeah, it's it's all it's all generated from from other factors. So it's quite interesting that that you were so convinced that once that happens, that's that's quite neat actually. Yeah, no, that's yeah. that's that is thrilling to hear. Yeah, I just I generally thought the Boolean logic that's how it was working. It's like, oh yeah, the if and or okay, yeah, okay, uh, that's working. Okay, it is this sort of simple storytelling thing where if you just provide enough like little hooks, then then people will tell their own stories, and that's yes. that's that's the best outcome ultimately is because then what we can come up with is a lot less interesting than what everyone else can. Um, yeah. So, yeah. It does, yeah. I just had these little stories like, well, I managed to build that motorway right across there because yellow really needed to get to that building. I know. I'll just throw that thing over. It looks, it looks absurd. I mean, that's just, it's, all right, fine. It's just not, there's no right or wrong way to do things. There is, but anyway, uh, I mean, there's more optimized way of doing just, things. Just hear, hearing you say that, that, that little snippet there, it might be that so far away suburbs that that aren't very near near any of the matching destinations they will they will expand quite fast because because yeah. a, a house is, is like worth less if it's far away from its its um, uh, destination and so then then it will need more houses to sort of meet the demand so that may be where that's coming from yeah yeah yeah. Next question, and this is something that comes up in all of my interviews, and it's um, it's not something I often hear people talk about, and it's odd because we video games are traditionally a a visual medium. There are some games that don't have any visuals; they're all sound stuff, which is awesome. But um, but yeah, it's uh, and how do you? What have you been doing? what kind of design sort of processes have you undergone to communicate to the player their condition of their city, where it's at? Is it working as intended or is it going going south pretty quickly and they're going to have to get in a whole town planner system to actually fix the mess they've made? <laughs> that is definitely something that we, that, 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 that the art team here um, Peter Poppy and Blake uh, spend a lot of time on. Um, so uh, uh, Blake, our own lead artist, he's he's he spends a ton of time just working alongside the design team and the programming team to uh, just have a look at what the issues are that we need to communicate and how best to because we I think it's quite easy for us to just just have an alert saying help this is wrong but it's it can be it, it what's a lot harder is to um is to actually communicate in a way that doesn't get too distracting when there's when it's happening a lot and where I where I suppose it's the right degree of urgency um and we do we do have quite a few I think many Metro, we found, is an easier game to communicate errors with. Meaning, there's a lot more going on in many more ways. And, and also, the thing is, is that um, 
the, 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 I think the biggest problem that we've done is that you can't tell where the cars are, are heading to or where they're from. Um, so it can be challenging for people to see why something has jammed up or like why there's a road road um, uh, uh, congestion occurring. So just yeah, we do lots of little, small little things to to suggest to people why things aren't coming along. So so we'll we'll like highlight unconnected houses, we'll um, highlight unconnected uh, destinations. Um, we'll show when a road is has to be removed, but it can't yet because it, uh, because there's a car that has to go over it yet. And also we do a lot of things with with um, uh, audio as well. So, yeah, so there's a lot of audio cues. Yeah, yeah. So, Brett, uh, Brett, or, or um, um, disaster pieces. He's better known. He he has spent a ton of time just uh, yeah figuring out figuring out audio hints to to suggest that you know things might not be progressing as you expect uh, in your city. Yeah, I just yeah, we, we've done a lot. Of, we've done a lot of work. Oh, pardon me. Sorry. So uh, the beeping horns is is like, oh, what's going on? <laughs> yes. Calm down, yeah. people. What's going on? Yeah. Um. So next question, and I mean, it's just a, it's the whole point of uh, most puzzle games is you need to know where you're at and what you're doing and. And that kind of thing, and it's the—it's not so much the failure mode because that's easy to highlight because it's about to implode. It's the point, the story leading to that that you want to give fair amount of warning before they actually go colliding into a wall. Um, and I think you've done a fantastic job of that. I just wanted to ask you about that. I want to ask about roundabouts and traffic lights. Uh, in many motorways, these are quite subtle tools that help to control traffic flow. Um, how have you found balancing them against ultimately installing a mini motorway? Yeah, that has probably been one of the toughest challenges that the design team has faced in the last year or so post-launch, I'd say, has been how to, how to balance all the upgrades. Um, Mini Metro was with that the upgrades I think were a lot more even and and we 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 didn't have to uh, we did, we didn't didn't have to work very hard to kind of make them all equal options. Mini motorways for sure has been a lot more challenging to make everything kind of worth the same uh, across the board. So. Um, we are going to introduce changes in an upcoming update, uh, which will make things. Wait, it's already out yet. Different costs for the. <laughs> <laughs> That's so. So basically, it, it depends on when this is going to air, Chris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... Ah, right. Well, this will be another sort of six weeks or so. So. All right. Okay. Okay. All right, cool. Okay. Then yes, it will be out by then. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. So we've we've made an alteration so that you get a different amount of road tiles based on which upgrade you pick. So, uh, which was a tool that we added, oh, I guess a few months ago in development time, which has meant that we can now add more upgrades into the mix and then cost them differently, um, and. Traffic lights specifically have had a, have had a very tumultuous history. Um, 
when we first added them, uh, they were so, I mean, they, they were good under very specific situations. If, if you had a north-south traffic flow and, a, and an east-to-west traffic flow and they didn't turn in, so that, that, they did help with that, with, with that situation. But if it was anything else than, except that, they were probably worse putting them in than not. Uh, so we spent a fair bit of time um, uh, Tana, one of our, our um, uh, programmers, who's, who's been on the project ever since it began, uh, he, he spent some, some time last year, I think, uh, just um, making sure that, that they, were, they were actually good in pretty much every situation now. And so they now are a lot more useful. Um, roundabouts, uh, we added in um, this year. And they've, they again, we, I, I, I think because our cars are quite, quite intelligent, um, and a, you know, uncontrolled intersection is actually quite efficient still. So when, when we add these, these little helpers in, it doesn't help as much as they would in the real world. So, so yeah. we, we do have to kind of work a bit harder to make them better. So, Roundabouts, I think, speed up the cars to go around them a little bit, and they, um, so they, they are better overall. But I think, I, I think, we do also like to make the game fun to just watch, and so often we also design things to, to also look good as well as as um, be be good strategically. So uh, I think that's also an aspect of it is that they just. Fun to watch in your town. <laughs> no, I mean, just the watching your little ant farm go. Yeah, yeah, it just makes the ant farm a bit more interesting as well as actually being being a bit more functional as well. Yeah, I mean the the there was an episode of I think it's MythBusters many many years ago where they compared an intersection uh, with uh, you know like uh, typically found in North America versus. Um, roundabouts they were started out from the position of roundabouts are dangerous they're like they're more trouble than they're worth and by the end of it they said these are the best things ever <laughs> because they realized that the, the traffic was flowing all the time no one's stopping it's what i say no one's stopping you do stop you have to give way to a point but ultimately it's it's about flowing and making sure everything and that's the premise of them so when i i would defer to those more than being who i am uh, then they are they are difficult to put in because they're much bigger. They take up a lot more space, uh, and that, yeah. that can that can be a problem. We we did spend a fair bit of time trying to trying to do the like size comparisons. We had one by one, two by two, three by three, and then the five, five grids one, which I think was Neve's suggestion. One of our designers here. I think suggested it, and then they, they ended up being the most useful and size efficient. Um, yeah, yeah, and and they they do work very well in very in in some situations. Others, I think, they're always good, but but in some in some specific situations, they're just excellent. Yeah, if, if things aren't going all the way around, they they're very very good. Yeah. So, last question. Um, is this, and I want to ask, in Mini Motorways, there is a limit 
on how many roads you are allowed to install in one particular period. You go, here's an upgrade, and here's some roads to add to it. Um, now, I, I, I understand why that exists. That's great. But my question is, how do you determine the number granted to the player? What's the limit? How have you figured out? You know, how much uh, rope are you giving the player to hang themselves with? <laughs> uh, we just play the game a lot and work out um, and just sort of pick a number sort of based on on what the experience has been uh, with, uh, through that game. Because we, we, do, we do obviously want to have enough roads for you to hook everything up, but we don't want you to have enough that you can do anything you want because otherwise that, that becomes a bit less, less fun. So, uh, yeah, honestly, it's just gut instinct and then testing it again and again and again. Yeah, it, every time we, we alter anything in the game, so how fast the, um, the game zooms out by how far we spawn things, uh, just all of that stuff, it all affects it. It all affects how many rotiles you have to have because the, the smallest thing, which can seem like a very sort of small small alteration, means that we have to we have to go back and and then uh, just kind of see if you how rich I guess you seem with rotiles <laughs> because we <laughs> we 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 always want you thinking about it a bit, but we don't want you struggling. But again, we also don't don't want you thinking, eh, I've got a hundred rotiles, I can build anything I want. So it's just all about having you in that sort of sort of sweet zone. We don't have any adaptive stuff. So if you if you build lots, we will just just still hand you the same regardless. Uh, we have been thinking about that, but it's hard to do that and not have it easily gamed. Um, yeah. And the other thing to keep in mind too is that when you're designing things like that, um our games in particular tend to appeal to an audience uh, that is not often the core gamer audience. And so especially the early stages of uh, the early maps uh, were designed kind of with keep keeping in mind that not everybody playing this game is going to be uh, good at figuring out how to optimize things perfectly or possibly inclined to do it at all, which is great, but it just means that... Um, there always there always has to be some uh, some room for fiddling, and then of course there's always the the fact that when you start a map, uh, you have a smaller surface area than when you are in kind of the end game stage, and the map is fully zoomed out. And so the level of uh, or pardon me the the number of road tiles that you will need uh, to kind of cross from end to end of your map will radically change between the beginning of the game and the end of the game. That is true. <laughs> Um, it's it's quite. It ceases to amaze me how it starts off like this. Seems quite serene. I mean, <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? And then twenty minutes later, sometimes ten. Oh God, what is this horrible? Uh, no, no, this is not what. Why are you going there? I said no. Don't. Oh, never mind. And then it all goes south. But. Uh, yeah, it's just fascinating to see one's uh, creation evolve into what it does. And uh, yeah, we we like to make games that you kind of left with this artifact at the end of this thing that you yeah. built, um, but not not ever sort of forcing you to do this kind of stressful planning thing. It's just it's just you just build it bit by bit, and then then at the end you're like, yep, that's that's what you did. Yeah, yeah. You you, you it's when you see images of it, it looks a bit complicated. 
Well, so, yeah. yeah, and that's that's true. When you by the end of it, you go, "How do I know how the thing is working? How did how did I know?" The reason being is because you saw it from when it was just a house and a building, you know, just one dwelling and another building they had to get to. That's where you started, and then it it spirals rapidly out of control because that's that's you know. That's why how it, that's the premise of the game, you know, is you're spinning these plates to the point where eventually one, two, or ten of those plates suddenly go smashing to the ground. That's how it works. That's, that's what happens when your city chases endless growth at all costs with no <laughs> yeah. thought about the consequences. Exactly, yeah. Who'd, who'd have thought? Uh, I mean, I still wince when I smash through a forest. Like, it's, this is bad. Yeah, uh, one of my favorite little Easter eggs in the game is the fact that the audio gets ever so slightly dissonant when you just like smash a tree. It's just like Rich's little cry out into the world, like, "Yeah, you've done that. (laughs) Why have you done that?" So, it doesn't actually have any in-game impact at all. No, 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 no. it just makes you feel terrible. You know, I fully appreciate that. It's just like that was. Anyway, mini motorway. They they explode so forcefully as well. (laughs) Is developed by Dinosaur Polo Club, which is an amazing name. Where's it come from? Thank you. Uh, It's a mashup of a a restaurant that my brother used to walk past every time he would walk to my house to work originally, Bangalore Polo Club. And his his son had dinosaur club pajamas, I think. So we would just say, yeah, let's just, that'll do. And I think we just had to fill in something for the Steam Greenlight form back in 2013. And we were like, yeah, that'll be fine. I don't think it'll actually like go anywhere. It won't matter. It and won't now, matter. It's, now it's on our... Uh, uh, yeah. And then you get the, the office now. So, yeah. You never will question. Um, but yeah. uh, no, yeah. well, one has to. But I just got visions of a T Rex holding a little polo club. And trying to... we'll be. We want to make that game eventually. Someday. <laughs> yeah, we'll actually make make the dinosaur <laughs> polo game. He's just being terrible at it because he can barely hold it. Yeah. Also, like when you when you think about it, like the the implications in the world in which this game would take place, would you be a human riding a dinosaur, or would it be like dinosaurs riding other dinosaurs? As the dinosaur is being ridden on by a by a human polo player, but we 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 haven't. Yeah, it could be anything. It could. Yeah, yeah, we we haven't explored the the lore implications of which dinosaur species would be subjugated to be polo beasts. Maybe it's like dinosaurs. Awesome. Yeah. Or it could be bears wearing small hats. You know, where, where <laughs> that is an option that you could pursue. Probably not. Australian probably. megafauna. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's out uh, now at the time of release um, uh, of this particular podcast on. Uh, I do know it works on Microsoft Windows. Would you tell us the other platforms? Yeah, it'll be out on Steam for uh, Windows and Mac, and it'll be out on Apple Arcade as well for um, iOS, iPad, Mac OS, and TV OS. Yeah. Nice. I do have Apple Arcade. Uh, one of my, my favorite. Yeah. One of my favorite games on there is Nuts. If you don't know that, I'd highly recommend. Yeah. It. Yes. Yeah. 
I uh, I got I was I was gonna say I got into nuts last Indiecade, but that's just I got yeah, it's a difficult yeah. game. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got I got quite into playing nuts during last Indiecade, which we were also a part of. Um, and uh, one of the uh, jury members, Parker, uh, introduced me to nuts as well as a couple of the other uh finalists this game called honey and hot wax which was actually a larp and i was just so tickled by the fact that indicade had so many like just completely different titles I was like oh so there's this like audio based game where you're a squirrel that's echolocating i'm not sure what the deal is with that and then there's a larp and then there's us it was just it was great it was a great crop of games it was just yeah. going to indicate with uh, with the first game back in 2014 that can that's me to get back into games because I, I I I was only going to do this whole whole kind of thing as a hobby, but then I but then NEK was just so inspirational that I was like, nah, I have to get back into this. Yeah. It's an excellent show. Well, it's been wonderful having you on the show. Thanks very much for being such fantastic guests and revealing all sorts of things about the creation of Minimotoways. So thank you. It's excellent being here. Thanks very much for the opportunity. Yeah, I've had a ton of fun. And uh, you're more than welcome to come back to talk about your next thing, whatever that may be. We have return guests a lot. Uh, our current record holders, I think, is Inkle, who've been on four times now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> They've got a lot going on. Yeah. They do. Yeah, yeah. They do. They do. But uh, in the meantime, thank you very much. Thank you, and have a lovely night. Thank you. You have been listening to the Sausage Factory podcast, part of the Cane and Rinse Collective. Support us for just two US dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash Cane and Rinse for early, extended and exclusive podcasts. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube and at our website, caneandrinse.com.